Our scripture reading today is from Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Um, This is found on page 808 in the Pew Bibles, so I'll give you a second to get there. Um, If you don't own a Bible, please go ahead and take the one that's in front of you um, as Christ's community gift to you. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all of Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Aaron. Well, good morning, Brookside. Merry Christmas to you all. My name is Anthony Emerson. I'm an associate pastor here at Christ Community. Hope you've had a wonderful uh, couple days of Christmas celebration but I'm glad to see you here this morning. And especially to our guests, whether you're from out of town or from down the street, we welcome you to this place. And we're sincerely glad that you are here with us. And I'd like to point out that uh, for our kids that are in the house, we have our Kid Connect in the back here behind these pews, uh, as well as some crayons. Um, so invite you to, to head back there and get those. Uh, fun way to follow along with the message for our kids. This is our final Sunday of the year, and it's also our final Sunday of our present sermon series called For All People. We've seen throughout Scripture that God has a heart for all people, and we've seen the past couple of weeks in the Christmas story itself this mission of God to all people. Today we come to the conclusion of this uh, series and we'll see the coming of a kingdom for all people. But before we jump into the bulk of our message, would you pray with me? Lord, we do need you. Every hour we need you. And so, Lord, we ask that you would be present with us in this hour. We ask, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts and open our minds to hear what you have to say to us this morning. Pray that you would use me to proclaim your word clearly. We ask, Lord, that you would get all the glory. We love you, and in your name we pray. Amen. Well, we celebrated Christmas this year with my wife Melissa's family down in Houston. It was about 75 most of the time, so we had a green Christmas. And because it was the only time it lined up with our schedules, we celebrated the week before last. We flew down, and on our way to Kansas City International, we were looking for dinner. We were looking particularly for a Chick-fil-A. We are considerable Chick-fil-A fans, especially being from the South. So we were planning on stopping there for dinner. We were going along, looking for our exit, but after a few minutes realized we had missed it. There wasn't great signage, maybe. We weren't looking close enough, but we we missed our exit. We had to turn around to get to where we wanted to go, but I hate turning around. 
turning around means that I messed up, that I missed something that I shouldn't have, that I have to cover ground that I've already covered. feels like I'm wasting my time, and it's usually my fault. We didn't have to turn around. There are restaurants at the airport, barely. There are other restaurants to pick from that are closer to the airport. It would have been easy to continue cruising on and stop somewhere already on our way. But it's worth turning around for Chick-fil-A. So we did, and after our meal, we were glad that we did. It was worth it. This question of, is it worth it to turn around, is present in more areas of our lives than just driving. You and I often ask that question about our careers, possibly, or our kids, or our marriages, or our school of choice, maybe even our lifestyles. We ask ourselves, did I make a mistake in coming to the place where I am at right now? When we come to that point of questioning, we ask, do I need to turn around and go the other way? Is it worth it to make that turn? These are the kinds of questions that make for a midlife crisis. But whether you're at a point of crisis or whether you're happy with your life, all of us have those questions. All of us question our direction, our actions, and we ask whether it's worth it to make some sort of a turn. C.S. Lewis, chronicle of, or the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, weighs in and he says this, we all want progress, but progress means getting nearer to the place where you want to be. And if you have taken a turn or missed your turn, then to go forward does not get you any nearer. If you are on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and going back to the right road. We have all seen this when doing arithmetic. When I have started a sum the wrong way, the sooner I admit this and go back and start again, the faster I shall get on. There is nothing progressive about being pig-headed and refusing to admit a mistake. If we are on the wrong road, we must go back. Going back is the quickest way on. This morning, we are introduced to a prophet whose message is this. It is worth turning around. It is worth turning around for Jesus' kingdom. This prophet, John the Baptist, uses the words that Aaron just read for us, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, turn around. The kingdom is worth it. It's worth turning around for Jesus' kingdom. And we're going to see three reasons why this statement is true. We're going to see that the kingdom that we turn to is glorious, the life that we turn from is fruitless, and lastly, the king who calls us to turn is gracious. But let's focus in first on, on this, this first reason that's worth turning around for Jesus' kingdom, that the kingdom we turn to is glorious. If you haven't already, I invite you to turn with me and your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. We're spending our time there this morning. The first thing I think it's important for us to notice about this text is that John the Baptist, 
if you read closely, seems to be somewhat crazy. According to verse 4, he's out in the wilderness. He's wearing camel's hair, and he's eating wild locusts and honey. This is not normal. Yet it says that people from all over were going out to him and doing drastic things like confessing their sin publicly. Why would people leave their nice synagogues, the churches of their day, and travel out to the middle of the desert to hear a crazy guy preach? And I think answering that question will be important. And to answer that question, I want to enter into this story through the eyes of a theoretical Israelite family and child. So we as a family, my mom, my dad, my brother and my sister and I, we live in a small house in the outskirts of Jerusalem. Dad is a goat herder. He works for a wealthy and influential farmer. We're a good Jewish family. We observe the Sabbath. We try and keep the law. We go to synagogue every week. And every week when we go to synagogue, and every time we open up Torah, our scriptures, our Bible, there's some dissonance, some confusion between our beliefs and our reality. You see, we as the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, have been persecuted and governed by foreign empires for hundreds of years. And we're still, to this day, under the power of the Roman Empire. We're governed by them. We pay taxes to them. And they have little respect for the one true God, little respect for us. Most of us are poor, and Rome benefits from their taxation of us. But in our scriptures, we're reminded that God has promised to come and rule us himself. He has promised through the prophets that he will come and establish his kingdom. And his kingdom is basically whatever, the place wherever, whatever God wants done, he gets done. It's the place where God's will is done, where peace and justice and holiness and relationship with him is found. When our people went into exile and under the, uh, came under the power of foreign empires, Half a millennium ago, he promised this perfect kingdom to us, this kingdom free from oppression and poverty and sin. But here we are today, ruled by Rome. We're still waiting and looking for the kingdom of heaven. Today is the day when we regularly go to our service at our local, local synagogue, but we're not going today. Our neighbors and our friends and people from the surrounding communities are flocking out to the desert to see someone called John the Baptist. It's been 400 years since God sent us a prophet, since we've heard from God. It's been a long time. So we're hoping that's what being is, what's being said about John the Baptist is true, that he's a prophet of God. Apparently, he dresses and he acts like a prophet. He wears camel's hair cloaks. He eats locusts and honey, just like the prophet Elijah did so long ago. I hope to God that he's real. After packing a lot of water 
onto our family donkey, we set out for the long hike through the wilderness. We're going out to the Jordan River in the middle of the desert, and it'll be about an eight-hour walk. But I'd love to see a real live prophet. And basically, everyone is going. After the long walk and nearly running out of water, we finally get to the Jordan. And there he is, a man with a scraggly hair and a huge untidy beard, shouting out to the crowd. And as we push through the people to get closer, we see the intensity in his eyes and hear the thundering power and authority in his voice as he shouts, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. At that point, it dawns on us. This is the guy who is foretold in the book of Isaiah. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, it says in uh, chapter 3, verse 3 of Matthew. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. This is the one who is heralding the kingdom of heaven, which means the coming of the Lord himself. But wait a minute, what does it mean to repent? I tug on my mom's cloak and ask her. She explains that it simply means to turn around, to change the direction of your life, to acknowledge you've made mistakes and you're going the wrong way, to turn back toward God. But, she adds, if you want to truly repent, Make sure that you understand this is no mere hat tip to the fact that you've sinned and messed up. This isn't just acknowledgement of sin, but it's a drastic commitment to turn from our own way of doing things towards God's way of doing things. And I think about it a little bit. Come to think of it, this would be kind of embarrassing, wouldn't it? I'd have to admit that I'm wrong. It would be inconvenient. I'd have to give up lying to my parents. I'd have to give up cheating on my homework. But the kingdom. God wants me to repent, not in order for me to feel terrible about myself, but in order for me to take part in his awesome, glorious kingdom. I think it's worth it. Now, in the present, we're sitting here in Brookside, on the other side of the globe from these events, 2,000 years later. But John's call to repent, to turn around, is still relevant for us today. It's relevant because you and I also, for us, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is not just a Jewish kingdom, but it is a kingdom for all People, the kingdom of heaven, remember, is simply the place where whatever God wants done, he gets done. And what does God want? God wants sins to be forgiven and illnesses to be healed and injustices to be made right and relationships to be reconciled and broken families to be made whole and our love and enjoyment of him to increase. The kingdom is wherever these things happen, where God's will happens. Now, to be sure, the kingdom of heaven will only be fully realized and experienced when Jesus comes again. 
But even now, at the end of 2015, in your life, the kingdom of heaven is available to you and is coming in its fullest form in the future. Don't you want to be a part of this? Don't you want to experience the joy and the blessings of being a part of God's kingdom where God's will is accomplished? It is well worth turning around for the kingdom. It's worth admitting to yourself and to God and to others that you've made mistakes, that you've been going the wrong way. Whether that means for you turning your entire life around or whether that means turning your attitude about a family member around. Whatever it may be, it's worth turning around because the kingdom that we turn to, life according to God's will, is glorious. But some of us may think that we don't need to turn around, that we already are going the right way. I'm not perfect, but I'm a pretty good person, you might say. I don't need to change my life, Anthony. Well, maybe, but there are are characters in this story that have that exact perspective. So let's enter back into what's happening and look at verses 7 through 12, and we'll see the second reason that it's worth turning around, that the life that we turn from is fruitless. Maybe you can see yourself in the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I know I can at times. They were good people. They had never done anything terribly wrong. They were well-respected in their communities. They came from respectable families. They were even leaders in the church of their day. But look at what happens when they arrive at the Jordan River to see John. John looks straight at them, and he likens them to a tree that doesn't bear good fruit. He doesn't say that it's a dead tree or even that it's an ugly tree, just that it's a tree that doesn't bear good fruit. A tree can look good, but if it bears no fruit or if it bears bad fruit, you know that it's unhealthy, that it's not thriving. John says to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you are fruitless. You're unhealthy on the inside. You might look good. Even even artificial trees look good. But you're not bearing fruit, and that is what counts. That is the telltale sign of health or a lack of health. So why does John say this about the Pharisees and Sadducees? And what kind of fruit are we talking about? Well, we know a fair bit about the Pharisees and Sadducees. We know that they were the ruling religious elite. We know that they had power and influence and status in the Jewish community. And we knew they were strict followers of the Jewish law. No one followed the law like these guys. They observed the Sabbath. They made it a point to stay away from any immorality, any hint of it. They fasted. They went without food two days every week in order to have time for focused prayer. I know I can't say that I do that. They were incredibly strict. So again, what's the problem, John? Why are they lacking fruit? The answer is found throughout the book of Matthew as we interact with the Pharisees and Sadducees, but in this passage, 
It's that while the Pharisees and Sadducees take pains to follow rules and be good people, they ignore God when He is working among them. In this chapter, God is at work through John the Baptist. That's seen in that He fulfills multiple Old Testament prophecies. He's calling people to repentance. Pharisees don't want that. Not only is John fulfilling multiple Old Testament prophecies, but he's preparing the way for someone called Jesus. And regardless of what you think about the identity of Jesus, he's probably the most influential, the most famous person in the history of the world. And it's hard to maintain that it's a coincidence that John is preparing the way for him, that John was just some crazy guy. God was at work through him, calling people to turn around. But the Pharisees, for all their good deeds and all the respect that they had from others, they ignored this and wanted no part of it, thought they were fine on their own. Recently, a man wrote an emotional, ranting blog about his life, which happens just about every day. But for whatever reason, this post went, uh, to some degree, viral. Several news sources picked it up. And part of what he says is this. He says, hi, my name's John. I'm a 46-year-old banker, and I've been living my whole life the opposite of how I wanted All my dreams, my passion, gone. In a steady nine-to-seven job, six days a week, for 26 years, I repeatedly chose the safe path for everything, which eventually changed who I was. Today, I found out my wife has been cheating on me for the last 10 years. My son feels nothing for me. I didn't complete the novel that I wanted to. I didn't travel the world the way I planned to. When I was 20, I was innovative, creative, spontaneous, and risk-taking. Now, after I was 20 is, is where it all went wrong. I was the only child. I needed to be stable. I needed to take that good job, which would dictate my whole life, to devote my entire life to a nine to seven job. What was I thinking? How could I live when my job was my life? After coming home, I would eat dinner, prepare my work for the following day, and go to sleep, and wake up and repeat. I regret doing nothing with my energy when I had it. My passions, nothing. I regret letting my job take over my life. I regret being an awful husband. Regret not finishing my novel, not traveling the world. If you're reading this, please don't leave your dreams for later. Relish in your energy, your passions. Do not forget your friends, your family, yourself. Do not waste your life. Do not be like me. This man's story is not unique. Many of us have probably heard something uh, to that effect from someone else. It's repeated in our society over and over. His dreams and his passions are stifled by his commitment to something else, in this case, security and stability, and he wakes up one day realizing that he's wasted everything. His life has been fruitless. 
Now, this man makes assumptions about what a fruitful life looks like. Our society makes assumptions about what a fruitful life looks like. It looks like adventure, travel, fulfilling personal dreams, and loving family. And of course, these things are far from bad things. But God's Word this morning says to us that life lived with God, in relationship with God, and according to His will, that's what makes for a faithful life, not just travel. And life apart from God, whether that involves being a workaholic committed to achievement or a party person committed to fun or a churchgoer committed to just following the rules… Life apart from God is what makes for a fruitless life. And that's a danger for all of us. We can be good people. We can go to church. We can give to the poor. We can love our families. But if we ignore and rejecting the working of God in our lives, if we refuse to take part in what He is doing in us and in the world, then no matter who we are, we lack fruit. No matter how good our lives appear to be, we have a lack of health. And we'll wake up at the end of our lives and realize that it's been fruitless. But where is God at work among us today? What is it that we're not wanting to miss out on? Well, the most fundamental way that God is at work at all times, including at this moment, in this room is He is drawing us all closer to Christ. If you don't consider yourself a Christian, then the way that God is at work is He is drawing you, asking you to trust in Jesus as your Savior, to turn around and to follow Him for the first time. If you consider yourself a Christian but have uh, fallen into a bad habit or haven't taken it very seriously recently, then He's drawing you back to Jesus, asking you to turn around and follow Him again. And if you're a believer here this morning who loves Jesus, He's drawing you into an ever more intimate and transformative relationship with Christ. Every morning, there is something to repent of, to turn from for the believer whether it's prideful thoughts or lust or judgmentalism or materialism, we constantly have the opportunity to draw closer and closer to Jesus by turning around. God is at work in every single one of us. Don't ignore Him. Don't go down the path of fruitlessness. It is worth turning around for the kingdom because life apart from God is fruitless. So what fruitlessness, what deadness do you need to turn from this morning? What in your life is apart from God? What does God want you to turn from? There was one person in history who did not have any need to turn, to to repent who was always facing the right direction. And we're going to conclude our time this morning viewing his introduction onto the stage of world history in the last part of Matthew 3. 
And we're going to see the final reason that it's worth turning around for the kingdom, and that's that the king who calls us to turn is gracious. Now, imagine the scene. John, because of his powerful preaching and his fulfillment of prophecy, has drawn multitudes of people out into the desert. He's an authoritative prophet of God who people have been waiting on for hundreds of years. But then he says this in verse 11. He says, He who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. To give you a glimpse of what he's saying here, no one at this time carried other people's sandals because it was too degrading of a job. Only people who carried other sandals or who held them were slaves. Slaves would carry their master's sandals if called upon to do so. So John is saying here that he's not even worthy to be a slave of this person that he's talking about. Imagine what the crowd is thinking, what our family from earlier is thinking. John is the most important human in the past 400 years, they're thinking. And he's not even fit to be a slave of this one that he says is coming after him. Who is this person? How great and powerful could this person be? While a murmur runs through the crowd as people turn to their neighbor and wonder about this, how great this person must be, that great one shows up at their elbow, and no one knows who he is. He's a common person himself, a carpenter from a small town called Nazareth, but he steps forward to be baptized, and it's then that John recognizes who he is. John objects. He says, Lord, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? A hush falls over the crowd. People begin to put it together and realize the implications of what John just said. That this Jesus of Nazareth, this blue-collar, lower-class carpenter, has just been named the coming king. And in that silence, Jesus says clearly to be heard, let it be so now. Baptize me, John. This one who we see in the rest of the New Testament lives a perfect life, who did not need to be baptized, who did not need to repent or turn around, is baptized for repentance. Why? Why does he get baptized? Leon Morris, a New Testament scholar, puts it this way. He says, Jesus might well have been up there in front standing with John and calling on sinners to repent. Instead, he was down there with the sinners, affirming his solidarity with them, making himself one with them. Jesus, from the very beginning of his ministry, makes himself one with his people. He acts in their place. He didn't need to repent. He didn't need to be baptized. The only reason he was baptized 
was so he would be able to fulfill every aspect of a righteous life. So he would be able to live a perfect life on behalf of his people, on behalf of you and me. He came, as he said in his answer to John, to fulfill all righteousness. Why is he being baptized? To fulfill all righteousness. You and I have sinned. We've missed our exit. We are unrighteous. Jesus did not come to simply teach us how to be righteous, because we can't achieve that on our own. Instead, He came to be righteous on our behalf. And just as He didn't need to be baptized, but was at the beginning of His ministry, so at the end of His ministry, He didn't deserve to die being perfect, but He was killed. He was crucified for us. Again, why? It's because God knows that what we need is not just a great teacher who can tell us the right way to turn around, to repent, but we need a substitute who pays the price for our not turning around. So then, whether you're totally new to church or whether you've been following Jesus for decades, God's word to you and I this morning is not that you have messed up and you need to turn around and fix it. Instead, His word is always, you have messed up, but my Son has graciously fixed it for you. I offer you the righteousness of His life that you can never achieve, the merits of His righteous life. I offer you the forgiveness of sins by His death. He is your substitute. Turn around, repent, and receive my grace. It's worth it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he came and he lived a perfect life on our behalf and that and he died on our behalf. And as we put our faith and trust in you, as we turn from our sin and our own way of doing things and turn toward you, Lord, we are graciously given by you his righteousness and the forgiveness of sins by his death. I thank you, Lord, that you have not given up on us. You call us to turn around. And I pray for everyone who is here this morning that you would make clear to them what it is you're calling them to turn around from and that you would give them the courage and that you would enable them, empower them to turn from that thing. Lord, we again, need you. And so we turn toward you. We live a life of repentance, Lord, where we are constantly turning toward you. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.